Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic and today we have a very special guest in our studio in the form of Lisa Sorrentino, the Head of Development at City West Housing, a Tier 1 registered community housing provider with strong development capability and a commitment to service delivery. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Okay. So, what is the difference? Well, tell me, what is, what is affordable living anyway, to, to start with? That's a good question. And there's a lot of definitions around affordable housing, and it's used interchangeably incorrectly with housing affordability. And housing affordability obviously is a lot in the news at the moment about how expensive it is to not only live in Sydney, but in New South Wales and Australia in general. Housing affordability has to do with how we can pay our housing expenses with our income and what that ratio is, is typically um, a metric that's used. With housing affordability as well, news at the moment, we're hearing a lot about diversity of housing and trying to make housing less expensive. And that's typically discussed with uh, the for sale product or ownership models, not with rental models. Whereas affordable housing typically is a rental model. Uh, so it's, it's subsidized build to rent really is what it is. And affordable housing is meant for um, households that are very low, low and moderate income households. What, what does that mean, low? And, well, I know what low, but what does moderate mean in terms of... I, I know. It, it's a... Um, so there's definitions of... So based on the median household income, a very low household would make 50% of the median household income. A v- low household would make 50 to 80% of the median. And a moderate would make 80 to 120%. Now, what does that mean? Okay, so the median household income for the Sydney statistical areas of November 2018 was $93,400. So what that means is someone on a low income is making roughly $46,000 to $74,000 per year for a household income. A moderate income. Okay, that's that's household income. Household right? income. I was, about, I was about to say, gee, that's, that's, not, that's not, not a bad income, actually. No, it's, it, well, it's, you know, two, typically be two uh, adults working. The moderate household incomes are $74,000 to $112,000. So if you take that within, you know, trying to live in the inner city Sydney area, that um, two incomes, um, you're not getting a lot for your money, actually, when it comes to rental options. So, but this is not the same as social housing, is it? No, it's not. So social housing um, is typically referred to as also public housing yeah and that's the government provided housing and typically it's also historically it's been run by the government most recently it started to being managed by other community housing providers so social housing in its uh really strict definition is those households who rely on government assistance payments as their sole source of income so those are those social housing units and those are, are very low income households now the, the affordable housing can house people on very low incomes, but they tip, they do the whole range from very low, low to moderate incomes. The um, the the sorry about that. The important thing to note about that as well is how the rents are calculated for social housing and uh-huh. affordable uh-huh. housing, because that's I think it's quite important because a lot of people have different definitions of what is affordable. Social housing residents, they pay a percentage of their household income for the rent, and that is set at 25%. So if their income adjusts, their rent adjusts accordingly. Affordable housing is considered to be affordable if a household is paying no more than 30% 
of their household income on rent. So at City West Housing, we have a tiered approach. So those on a very low income only pay 25%, those on a low income pay 27.5% of their income, and those on a moderate income will pay 30% of their household income. So you know, the lower the income brackets, the less discretionary income they have, and the less they have the ability probably to, ba to service their other basic needs, such as you know, food and health care and transport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, there. I was speaking with an architect yesterday, and he designs well, social housing, mm -hmm. and he said there's a well, there's always community, um, I guess, resistance to having this kind of housing around. Is this the same as the, with with what you do, or, or do you find do you find that there are there is concern with with um, with the residents? Yes, sir. other residents. I mean, yes, there's there's not just other residents, there is a stigma. There okay. is a stigma with the term social housing, community housing, um, public housing. And Doesn't need to be rebranded, perhaps. Well, that's, I think affordable housing was probably a take on, on rebranding, but we've even had some of our existing residents resist to apply initially for affordable housing because they thought there was such a stigma attached to it. And they now feel silly and go, there shouldn't be a stigma. Affordable housing is a fantastic thing. The um, And even those, we do have... Um, residents of ours who could apply for the public housing and social housing, but they refuse to do so because of the stigma. So they rather go ahead and apply through us. So it, it definitely does have a stigma, not only for those outside, but actually those who technically fit the definition, which is unfortunate because we're all still people. We are. Um, which model do you think works better? From a built form yeah. perspective? So there's been a number of models over, you know, they've been tried throughout the um, throughout the world, as well as within New South Wales, and even within City West over our history. So we have uh, the majority of our buildings are 100% for affordable housing. They've been designed and developed for that purpose, and they're managed in that way. We have in the past acquired some units that were part of larger um, apartment complexes. So we've had a few units. And we have found that's that is you know referred to in different ways as salt and peppering or a mixed tenure approach. We have found it doesn't work the best, and it doesn't work for our residents. It doesn't work for us as managers, and it doesn't work for us as owners. And the reason the residents particularly don't like it is because there tends to be a lack of social cohesion within the community of that building, that building's community. So they tend to not have the same socioeconomic backgrounds, therefore they don't have the same disposable incomes. So as an example, if you were to have your neighbor, he had a conversation and went, oh, this would be nice, would you like to grab a coffee down the road? The one gentleman who perhaps is not in affordable housing has a high level of discretionary income, he's happy to go down to the cafe and spend $5 on a coffee. The resident on affordable housing income has a very restricted discretionary income, and $4, $5, is out of their reach. They'd be going and paying, you know, two dollars on a maybe a dodgy or hole in the wall type place, um, and not because it's cool, because it's affordable. So right then and there, you have a very apparent restriction in that potential kind of friendship because they're not gonna, they don't have things in common. Um, you know, th their approach to where they're gonna hang out, what they're gonna do. So residents feel awkward. Um, they also have, we've had, um, we've heard of statements of residents who have been in those mixed community tenures that as soon as a problem arises, the affordable housing tenants are to blame.
So, can I ask, this is going to be the annoying question, what is a typical client of yours? Yes, that is an annoying question. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's only annoying because it's, uh, there is no typical. That's the problem. I get asked this question over and over again. I'm, I have been speaking with many um, stakeholders, developers, and councils and about affordable housing and, and what we do. We, we don't have a typical because we have... We are a representation of society. We have, at the moment, 54% of our households have children and teenagers. We have a lot of families. And that's in, you know, inner city of Sydney. And typically, you don't associate kids with being in the city, you know, especially when you're going around and going and missing your transport. But they do work, you know. They, they, we, they, they're they part of life. We have families, and they do live in the city. We just need have a lot of options for housing for them. That's why we're seeing the affordable housing. We have, you know... 10% of our residents identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders. We have 13% of our residents that identify with a disability of some sort. So they don't necessarily need disability accommodation, but they do have um, maybe some mobility or cognitive issues. Um, so we don't discriminate at all. We, we, make, um, we, we ensure that we uh, adapt units as needed for them. So we, for instance, we've had a, actually, I have a, I'll give you, not a typical resident, but I'll give you a resident. So Wendy, Wendy came to us. When I talked about stigma previously and stigma of people not wanting to apply for affordable housing or think that they, it's not them, they don't need a handout or they don't need help. Wendy was a divorced mom, or she is a divorced mom, sorry, with three kids. At the moment, one of her children have, has grown up and fled the nest, which has left her with two teenage daughters. She was living in a three-story walk-up with her two daughters. Normally, that's not a problem. However, her youngest daughter is severely disabled, and she is non-mobile, non-verbal, and restricted to a wheelchair. Wendy works full-time, and Wendy's her primary caregiver. So here Wendy was, and they were in a two-bedroom unit, and she was in housing stress. She was paying more than 30% of her income on rent, and she was struggling, you know, her care kid and d- duties and everything else. Rent was continually going up for her in the private sector market, and it was becoming extremely unaffordable for her. Someone had referred her to affordable housing and said, Wendy, this is perfect for you. You should go ahead and look into this. She reluctantly applied. She was offered a unit in one of our older buildings. So, you know, we've been around for 25 years now. Some of our buildings are a little bit older, not all shiny and brand new. They're all in very good condition, but, you know, some people are expecting only brand new stuff. She was offered a three-bedroom apartment, and she showed it. She was shown the unit with her um, middle daughter, and she was hesitant in taking the unit. She goes, "Oh, I'm not so sure. I don't really. I, I feel like this is a bit of a. I'm getting a charity. Uh, I, I just don't know." And her daughter said, "Mom, if you don't take it, you're crazy. You need to take this unit." So she went ahead and accepted. And then she went, "Okay, now I need to get the bathroom modified modified for my daughter's wheelchair." And she was starting to, to see what kind of services she can get. And we said, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll retrofit the bathroom for you. And we'll make all the requirements, amendments we need into the unit to make sure that the, the apartment is safe for you. you can, it's livable for you and your family. So the modifications were made. And she's been there now for a number of years. And she is also sitting on our tenant voice advocacy group. And she is now, you know, quite the advocate for affordable housing. And I tell her, I, I met her, and I hadn't actually seen her face. And I met her, and she was talking, and I went, you're Wendy. 
She goes, yes. I go, your story is quite powerful when I go ahead and explain to people who needs affordable housing and why. And she goes, well, that's very important. I'm, re I'm really glad my story's out there. She goes, I never would have thought I would have shared my story, but I think it's extremely important for people to understand why affordable housing is necessary. So I think, you know, Wendy is, a, you know, a case in point, and she now has stability of her home, and she knows that when her eldest daughter leaves, she's not going to be kicked out. She's going to have a place. Um, and when her youngest daughter is having issues with her health and she's needing more surgeries and what have you, she, and if she's not able to work, her rent's adjusted, you know, for her current situation. So she knows she's not going to be, she's not at threat, and she's got a very stable environment. Her middle daughter is now attending university as well, so it's giving the stability for their children as well to get that education and to have that st security, and that's everything to these people, particularly to parents. You know, everyone wants stability and security, particularly in housing gives that. Okay, that sounds like <coughs> the challenges that you help other people overcome. Um, what about the challenges that you face? We face a lot of challenges. Um, we are a full-service community mm -hmm. housing provider, so we do development as well as the management of our assets and the, um, our residents, um, our housing services. So we have challenges within each of those areas. Um, as head of development, the biggest challenges that I have are not too dissimilar to any other developer, um, except they're, they're further exasperated because I need subsidized land. I cannot compete with the other developers who are building apartments. Because okay, that, that, that in New South Wales would be a problem, wouldn't it? Uh, oh, it's absolutely, mm -hmm. it is, um, it's, it's a really big problem. We, with the, because we operate, well, having operated in the city of Sydney, we're very fortunate to have our partners with the city of Sydney um, council. And they have helped to provide us with um, subsidized land in a number of instances. So we have a project under construction right now in Harold Park, which was subsidized land that we purchased from the city, and there's a number of other parcels as well that there we are in discussions with them on. However, that's come to the end. You know, we they once we finish that pipeline, there isn't really no other subsidized land. So we have tried to as well um, utilize affordable housing SEP and some other LEP provisions to help make affordable housing a little bit less expensive to develop but it's still development costs keep going up and up and our rental incomes are only going up by wage growth. Okay, so you basically, uh, you, you're city west, so it's, it's at the western part of the CBD, so it's Piermont, Ultimo, Harold Park, around those areas where you mainly... Well, yes, it used to be. Oh, okay, it's changed? Well, we were initially set up for that area. However, when we were very successful... Um, in our early days with th the number of developments and um, apartments we were able to acquire in that area and then we ran out of opportunities of where to go. So initially it was just for Piermont and then we were expanded into Ultimo. And then we are allowed to use those our, the funds under the affordable housing plan within the LGA. So we do have an, some other pipeline projects um, in Green Square as well. There's also a Green Square um, affordable housing plan. So we have um, a few projects that we have completed over the years there. And we do have another three in the pipeline in that area. So we are looking, um, you know, everywhere in the LGA, but it, it's difficult. In terms of the, what well, you know, in terms of the type of structures you're talking about, are they typical or are 
are they atypical? Are they, are they different in terms of in terms of the way they're designed, the way they're built? I mean, you were talking about the, obviously the modifications for people with disabilities and whatnot, but let's uh, let's look at it from a holistic point of view. When um, when you look at a building, is there something in particular that you um, look for in terms of the in terms of the design? No, they look like any other building. Thank you. Um, like I said, what we look at it is the durability uh, of the of, of the design and design from a and the design and the products. When you are walking down the street, the aim is that you can't point out our buildings. You can't think that all oh, that is that on purpose. Housing. Yes. Okay. It should be indistinguishable. It should not have a stigma attached to it whatsoever. Uh, we don't get any special com um, compensations as well for development. We have to go through design competitions on some of our buildings within the city of Sydney. We have a very high um, level of architectural design incorporated in our buildings. We have also received UDIA awards for our design excellence as well. Uh, we use the same kind of consultants that any of the other developers use. Uh, so it's not uh, the product itself, and this is the biggest thing, there's changes that we make to the product to make sure that it is fit for purpose. So. The durability of the design, we, we've learned over the years, there's certain issues that are more maintenance intensive, so we put a lot more care into to making sure that they're addressed in a significant detail in the design, much more than normal. So things like um, waterproofing um, is, a, is an issue. You know, we want to make sure our roofs don't leak, <laughs> of course. Fair enough. Um, where, you know, we've got, there's a, a number of issues um, that do happen. We also look at um, making sure we're not just putting in trendy products so sometimes we'll have i talk to architects they'll put you know want to put in the same type of finishes that you know finishes are happening in the market apartments we're like no no we don't need you know high-end finishes we just need quality finishes we're looking at okay. what kind of warranties are available the durability absolutely what is the most satisfying part of your role M the most satisfying part is you know hearing stories like wendy's and just that you know, basic providing that basic need of housing and a, and a roof over heads of people. The unfortunate part is that w I can't develop enough because there's such an, a big need for affordable housing. You know, our, our waiting list is almost 400 people at the moment, and they're going to be waiting for years. Okay, I was about to ask. So, so, so 400 people. How many how many um, residents would you place in a year? It depends if we have a development finishing in a year or not. Okay. So, you know, normally we might only have, we have a very, very low level of turnover of our existing residents. Residents stay with us for years. It's not a short-term need. It's a long-term need. We've had some residents of ours that have been there nearly as long, t long as we've been operating. So we've had residents who have initially joined us and they were, you know, in the middle of their career working and they're now approaching retirement. So they're retiring with us. Wow. Okay. And this is again, we're about making the design that it's fit for purpose. It also needs to be able to, you know, change with our residents, change in their lifestyles. So it's almost it's almost like you're getting to aged care now, because, oh. <laughs> because, <laughs> because <laughs> and and there's there are specific challenges with that as well, aren't there? I mean, you know, you, there well. there are, and you know, one of the things about fit for purpose in in that example is. Um, we have a, a, one of our buildings is a little bit older, and a lot of the residents in there have been there for a very long period of time, and um, you know, it's almost 20 years in that particular building. And despite all the care that we've done and keeping up that building and the maintenance, the lift needs to be replaced, of all things. Cool. And back in the 90s, when you did development, you didn't do multiple lifts. You did one lift. That's right, yeah. So now we have residents who ha now have mobility issues because they're a little bit older, 
and we've had to relocate residents because we have to take the lift out for three months in order to replace it. Mm-hmm. We've had some residents who have refused to leave because that's their home yeah. and they don't want to leave. And we're trying to look after their safety. And we said, well, we can let us help relocate you to another apartment in a building with a lift. And they're adamant. And we can visibly see their mobility issues, you know, struggling to get down a hallway, let alone having to tackle three flights of stairs. Mm-hmm. So we're having to put support services in to make sure that they are safe and they have, you know, everything that they need during this period of time. But we can't force them to, you know, to leave. It's, it's at the end of the day, it's up to them. And we're not asking them to leave. We're just asking them to put them in a, a apartment that we think more suits their um, needs. So that's another challenge with, um, you know, making sure that we can service our, our residents in a safe way. I also read somewhere recently that the needs, the need for these kind of services is increasing. Is it A, is that correct? And B, if so, why? Yes, I think it's absolutely increasing. Why? I don't think we've had enough housing supply. It's, you know, supply and demand. And you look at the amount of housing and all the projections, you know, back when I was in my delivering market apartments, that was one of the biggest things we kept seeing with, you know, where the approvals were coming from and how much supply was out there. And you were looking at all the different factors of demand that put putting into demand, not just for affordable housing, but just demand in general. And you can see that there was not enough supply. And that's, you know, the issue. And supply isn't just going out in the growth areas and supplies making sure it's supply that's serviced well by infrastructure and by transport and by community amenities and all of those things. So, you know, they've they've been trying but nothing has provided enough to to make it, you know, have an impact. And then we take other factors about people and uh, not having uh, being underemployed. Mm-hmm. That has a factor as well. Has that actually? It's interesting you say that. Has that actually increased? Because mm. where we are, I'm forever seeing food delivery guys. Oh, they they seem to be multiplying around here. The gig economy. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that would play into in, in, into some of the well, at least some of the the, the clients or, or residents that, that you deal with, where you're underemployed or or the stability of employment isn't there, therefore other housing becomes, you know, perhaps out of reach. Is, is that something that you're seeing? Oh, absolutely. We have, while we have a number of our households are employed full-time, about 55%, we have 30% of our households are only employed part-time. And we have a further 15% that are in casual employment. And because our rents are income-based, our residents have the ability when they have a change in their income circumstances to come to us can ask for a rent review, what we call a rent review, and we look at all of the income that they're making and then we assess. So quite often they'll come to us obviously when they've had a change in hours, um, there's casual workers who are not picking up as many shifts, they might have had um, one person go on parental leave, you know, having a child, all of those impact a household's ability for generating income. And as a result, we have seen a reduction um, quite recently, particularly about what people are earning. And so as a result, our you know, rental in- receipts have decreased uh, in co- correlation to that. Is your business affected by the changes in, in the rental market or not? I mean, is it, is it, is it, is it quarantined? I know that you su- the rents are subsidized or, or whatnot, but there, there is a buffering, isn't there, in terms of... Well, for any of our residents to pay a 
rent in the private sector and not be in housing stress. They really need to be making above a moderate income. They need it to, in order to pay the median rent in the city of Sydney without being in housing stress, a household needs to make $112,580. So no matter that, what... That actually seems like a, not, a, not a small amount of money when you actually think of it, doesn't it? It's not a small amount of money. However, when you think about um, a minimum wage worker makes $37,398. Okay. So if you take two minimum wage workers living in a household together, they would still be at the very low end. Of the, sorry, they would be a low-income household. They still okay. wouldn't be moderate, and they still wouldn't be able to afford it. And that's, I guess, you know, it's what we're seeing with issues with um, people not having that full-time employment. Or we also have, you know, on the flip side, it's not we have people that are potentially are, you know, artists or working in seasonal work. And seasonal okay. work, so for instance, we have a resident who works at the Opera House in the wardrobe department. Okay. So that sounds exciting. It does sound exciting, but then part of the year does not work. Of course. Um, what role does council do councils play in, 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 in your in your business? So the city of Sydney is very active and they have been one of the, you know, front runners with advocating for affordable housing. They've had an affordable housing um, inclusional zoning policy going on for nearly as long as we have been in existence. And they are, you know, a very um, strong supporter of affordable housing, however they can be. In saying that, though, there's a limit to how much they can do. And there needs to be more intervention at, you know, state and federal levels. A lot of other councils are now starting to explore affordable housing, understand it, not explore it, but understand it. It's a very complicated thing to understand because, you know, people sometimes get associate affordable housing with social housing, like we discussed previously, when it's not that, and trying to understand how they can support it within their local areas because a lot of councils, you know, don't have surplus funds. They don't have surplus land that they could earmark for affordable housing. Affordable housing isn't a land use in its own right, you know, like we have like for open space or community centers. We're just in the normal, you know, residential land. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult for a subsidized product. That's why we have all those different land classifications when they're, you know, different rates can apply from, you know, office land, you know, is not as valuable as residential land. And, you know, open space land is effectively hasn't, you know, it has a value, but from a financial tradable value, it's not there. So that's the, you know, one of the biggest things about how councils can support affordable housing because they're struggling how to do that. And they all are, tend to be operating on limited resources. There's a number of councils who have also... Um, you know, have policies and they're implementing them, but everyone's kind of, there's not a, s- a central way of approaching it. And mm-hmm. that's that's the difficult um, thing about different policies. There's not a consistent policy across Sydney. So in some LGAs, affordable housing isn't based, the rents aren't based on a household income, but they might just be a discount to the market rent. So they might say, okay, if the rents, the median rent is $1,000, we'll discount it by 20 25%, and all of a sudden now, ta-da, it's affordable. But it still may not be affordable. Mm-hmm. It still may mean that a household is in housing stress because they may be paying 60% of their income on that reduced rent still. And that subsidy may not be enough. So our subsidies can go up to over 50% on some of our apartments. Because a, a household, this is one, one thing that typically shocks people. I talk about income-based rents and everyone nods and says, yes, okay, I understand, you know, you take a household income and do the math of 30%. And then I go, but you realize that means I could have 
a low-income household or a very low-income household in a three-bedroom apartment paying less than a moderate household income in a one-bedroom unit because it doesn't matter what size the unit is, the rent is based on the household income, okay. not the size. So just because I have, you know, might have a different percentage of mix of unit types, that doesn't actually influence how much rent I receive. It's about who's living in them. Almost in verses, uh, you know, the the um, the property model. But yes, um, well, let's go back to the buildings. Yes. Um, instead of building new, do you ever uh, reuse um, existing structures? I mean, and I, I know Sydney's full of. Well, we, we're in one a warehouse. Well, mm. once was a warehouse. Now, it now is an office block. But do you ever get into this adaptive reuse of of, of buildings? I believe we've had one building in our portfolio that we did about 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was. I think in that area there'd be there'd be plenty. There of was issues, yeah. there was one in Piermont. It is a heritage building that we did. There there is one building that was repurposed, but we haven't done anything since. And predominantly, that would be come down to the cost. The cost to build new is cheaper than the cost to retrofit. Really? Yes. Yes. Because particularly because, you know, you're looking at older buildings and they may not meet the requirements for fire for natural ventilation to get airflow, for access to sunlight. So there's a number of things that you have to retrofit in order to comply with the apartment design guidelines that you just can't, it just makes more sense to start over and build a building from scratch. You know, how can you get lifts in? How can you make the units then fit for purpose for the residents? How can you incorporate, you know, amenity areas because we've got old buildings they may not have a, had outdoor space in them and we put outdoor space in all of our buildings so the residents have a place that's safe and secure to go out and to you know relax or barbecue how you're doing things here in australia is there a, a comparison to overseas and b is there somewhere where they're doing it better and please don't say scandinavia because <laughs> You're going to say Scandinavia, aren't you? No, I'm not. Oh, thank God. No, no, no. I think it's it's difficult because everyone has... I've heard a lot of examples, and it makes me laugh sometimes because um, what works in one culture doesn't necessarily work in another culture. Fair enough. So for one thing, okay? So I know um, co-housing is being looked at over throughout Europe as a um, type of affordable housing. Um, yes, it works in some countries because culturally... That's how they follow the rules, and that's how they do things. But it would work in Australia. I'm not so confident, you know, that people would clean up after themselves in the kitchen, considering, you know, what I've witnessed in, in workplaces. I can't imagine that happening in a home environment. I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about, ma'am. So um, there's that. The Being from the States, um, we had built to rent that was just for affordable, and that was subsidized by the government. So it then it's coming down to, you know, what kind of government programs and an ongoing subsidy. So there's been a number of affordable housing subsidies available in Australia, but they haven't been, there's not a consistent, you can't rely on them. They tend to be for a set period of time or at a particular point in time. And it's a subsidized product. You know, you've got to have a funding method, you know, a sustainable funding strategy for these subsidized products. And without having them, then, you know, you have the potential for, them to not be fit for purpose, for them not to be maintained, you know, or what happens at the end of the useful life of a building. You talk about repurposing, you know, we're making sure we've got a capital improvement plan in our buildings, so we know what happens. We haven't hit our buildings being 50 or 60 years old. What happens when they get to that point and we can no longer, you know, do any replacements, the capital things, and we need to look at 
what do we do with the whole building? Then what do we do? Mm -hmm. So those are kind of also, it's a later on issue, but it still will be an issue, and we still need to consider it now and not just leave it for whoever's there um, to, to address later on. Hmm, interesting. You almost have the same worries and problems of, of many urban planners and in, in, in councils and in, in state governments. Yes. I think we all have a shared vision as well. Lisa Sorrentino, Head of Development of City West Housing. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, I've learned a lot. I think our listeners have, uh, well, will, will have learned a lot. And until next time, this is Branko Melodica, Talking Architecture and Design. Uh, goodbye. Thank you.